You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. We're in a series called uh, The Jesus Encounters, and we're in Luke 23, looking at verses 13 to 25 today. This is a text that is more um, commonly, normally associated with Easter, not Christmas, which is coming up quickly, by the way. If you didn't know that, forewarning, it's coming and it's coming really quickly. Uh, Decorations will be going up here uh, in the next couple of weeks to remind you of that. Um, And we'll have more news about Christmas and the Christmas season here in the next few weeks. But we're gonna stay in this text, even though it's more associated with Easter because the things that we see in this Jesus encounter are things that are appropriate, good, enriching, encouraging uh, for us to see regardless of the time of year. And that's why we're going here. So let's read our text. Like I said, Luke 23, 23, uh, verse 13 to 25. However, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start reading from verse 1 just to give you the context, but we'll be spending the rest of our time later on in the text or the chapter. It begins, Then their whole assembly rose up and brought him, that's Jesus, before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you say so. Pilate then told the chief priests and the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man, but they kept insisting he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all of Judea from Galilee, where he started even to hear. When Pilate heard this, he asked if the man was a Galilean. Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer him. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Then Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, You have brought me this man as one who misleads the people, but in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things that you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. Then they all cried out together, Take this man away, release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown into prison for a a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why, what has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and their voices won out. So Pilate decided decided to grant their demand and release the one they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder, but he handed Jesus over to their will. Uh, Let's pray together. 
And so, Father, um, as we gather this morning, I thank you that we can. I thank you for the privilege of, of coming together as, as your people or people that are seeking you, asking questions about you. But as we gather, we're very cognizant that some can't today. Um, uh, churches and ministries in the valley that are dealing with the effects of this past week, uh, families that are just trying to make sense of, of their lives now as the result of what, what they have gone through. And so we want to remember them want to pray for them, want to lift them before you. And I pray most of all, as I, as I touched upon earlier, most of all that this would be something that would draw people closer to you, not farther from you. It's events like these that are meant to cause us to think soberly, to take stock of our lives, to realize that we so often think we're in control until uh, the rains come, quite literally. And so I pray that this would be used, this time would be used for good in spite of uh, the, the tragedy uh, that some have gone through. We pray for those families, especially that have lost family members, those families that have lost businesses. We, again, pray for them that this would be something that would, that would draw them closer to you, not farther away. And we pray for churches, ministries that are coming alongside of the hurting and, and, and the... And, and, and the sorrowful. We, we pray that you would give them energy and grace and strength and wisdom in, in knowing how they can best be your hands and feet in this time. And we also pray for this time in the word, your word that you've given to us. I, I pray against distraction today that you would help me as I teach. I need much help in my teaching, so help me please, I pray in Jesus, your great name. Amen. One of um, the things that theologians and academics and historians have wrestled with over the centuries, quite literally, has been the question of who killed Jesus? Who killed him? Who was responsible? Was it the religious uh, who out of envy and shouts of blasphemy killed him? Or was it the Roman politicians who hold the blame? After all, it was only the Roman leadership who could grant execution. And what about the crowds? The crowds who cried out in unison, crucify him. Surely they must have had some influence over the death of Jesus. So the question is, did religion kill Jesus or did politics kill Jesus or did the people kill Jesus? And, and tied to that question, why did they kill Jesus? Was it because he was considered a blasphemer, as I, as I mentioned earlier, or, or was it because of the threat of insurrection and uprising? Or did it come because he was a disappointment to the masses? So get rid of him, crucify him. Well, let's go to our text and see what we can find out. A very simple outline this morning, an outline that begins with Pilate. Pilate has an encounter with Jesus at the beginning of our, of our text and throughout thereafter. Um, but what I want us to notice about Pilate as we look at him is I want to notice specifically the will of Pilate. So if you're taking notes, the first point would simply be called the, the will of Pilate. It's shown to us in verses 13 to 16. I know I've read it already, but let, re, let me remind you of what it says. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people and said to them, you have brought me this man as one who misleads the people, but in fact... 
After examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things that you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. So there's his will, verse 16 specifically. I will have him whipped, I will have him punished, I will have him scourged, and then release him. Do you hear what he says? I, I will whip him, I'll punish him, and then release him. After having said two times already, I have found him innocent of all charges. So why? Meaning, he's innocent, Pilate. So why punish him if he's innocent before releasing him? That's an all-important question. Because that question leads to the supreme will of Pilate, the overarching will, the will that supersedes all other wills. What is that will? Pilate's will was to appease the people and keep the peace above all else. Now, to help understand this, we have to dig deeper into the life of Pilate. So first off, who is Pilate? What's his, what's his story? Well, he was the Roman governor of the region or the province of Judea. Judea is where Jerusalem is located. Um, we have to remember this is the height of the Roman Empire. And so even though Israel had some freedom and some latitude, Rome still rules. And and so Pilate had been placed there by the Roman emperor, a man named Tiberius, to govern Judea. Judea is a Jewish hotspot. Uh, we'll, we'll get to why that is a little bit later. But do we know anything about Pilate? Um, can we figure out anything about his personality and his character? Well, we do discover some things when you bring together both biblical and extra-biblical records together. Um, and what we discover is that he was a typical Roman meaning he was an individual who loved the luxury and the advantage of being a Roman citizen, especially a Roman citizen in a position of power. But he also coupled that with a great disdain for the Jewish people and wasn't hesitant to shed their blood if necessary. For example, and you can read this behind me in Luke 13, verse 1, we read there, at that time... Some people came and reported to him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. What is that? Well, this is a record of a horrific event where Pilate went into the temple and he he captured Galilean worshipers there and he slaughtered them there and he took their blood and mixed it with the blood of their sacrifices. Just think about that. How do you think that went over with the people? Additionally, Pilate had spent money that he had taken from the temple for personal building projects. Think about that. Think about what, if I came up here next Sunday and I said, hey everybody, just an FYI, last week John Horgan came in here and he took our offering from last Sunday and he's taking it back to Victoria and he's building a backyard fence with it. How would you feel? This act actually led to the Jewish leadership going to the emperor, Tiberius, and complaining about it, understandably so. 
But that's not all. Pilate also had Roman banners placed in the temple that had on them the motto, Hail Caesar God. So again, just think about coming back here next week. You walk in and on stage we have banners that have on them, Trudeau is Lord. And I'm not trying to be political here, okay? You go crazy. Understandably, you go crazy. This event as well, this banner episode, caused the leadership to go to Tiberius and demand that something be done. And Tiberius, and this is important to understand the the context of Luke 23, Tiberius actually ordered Pilate to remove the banners. In other words, the Roman emperor took their side. And it was at that point that, that the people living in places like Jerusalem started to smell blood in the water. And I'll tell you why in just, in just a moment. So what do we know so far about Pilate? Well, he's a murderer. He's an extortionist. He's an idolater. He was committed to emperor worship. That's Pilate. But there's more. You can read this behind me. One historian writes this of Pilate. He hated the Jews whom he ruled, and in times of irritation freely shed their blood. They they returned his hatred with cordiality and accused him of every crime, maladministration, cruelty, and robbery. He visited Jerusalem as seldom as possible, for indeed, to one accustomed to the pleasures of Rome, with its theaters, baths, games, and high society, Jerusalem, with its religiousness and ever-smoldering revolt, was a dreary residence. He lived in the ocean city of Caesarea, and when he did visit, he stayed in the palace of Herod the Great, it being common for the officers sent by Rome into conquered countries to occupy the palaces of the displaced sovereigns. That's Pilate. He's a big city kid. He's a New York kid. He's a Toronto kid. He's a Vancouver kid, but he's been stationed in places, a place like Cash Creek. You know what I mean? No offense to Cash Creek. I was in Cash Creek. This week, had to drive through there a couple times trying to get home. Do you you remember that blood in the water that I I mentioned just a a moment ago? Here's what I mean by that. Pilate's, Pilate's job description was very simple. His job description was keep the peace, Pax Romana. Keep the peace and keep people paying their taxes. That was it. That's his full job description. Judea, however with its ardent followers of Judaism, with Jerusalem being at the epicenter of that region, and full of haters of Rome, were always a threat to revolt. So Pilate, keep the peace. Keep things calm, keep money coming in, that's it. And yet, what's Tiberius thinking? All Tiberius is receiving is complaint after complaint after complaint about about Pilate, but not only that, Tiberius acquiesces to them on things like the banner episode. And so what do we have? We have an annoyed Tiberius, we have Pilate who's on thin ice with his boss, and we have a group of Judeans who smell blood in the water because they have come to recognize that if they push hard enough on Pilate, he'll back down. That's the context of Luke 23. 
As I've mentioned several times already, Pilate had one goal in mind, please the people and keep the peace. That's why Pilate is in Jerusalem in the first place. It was Passover. What does that mean? One of the, the key celebration remembrance on the Jewish calendar, but it was one of those that required followers of Judaism to travel, make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands would would, would make their way there. The city would have been jam-packed, full. And what does Passover celebrate? Release from captivity to Egypt. And here they are now celebrating Passover in bondage to Rome. If there was ever a threat for a riot, it's now. And that's why he's there. And so... If keeping the peace meant whipping an innocent man before releasing him needed to happen, so be it. That's the will of Pilate. But this leads, secondly, to the will of the people. Take a look at it, starting at verse 17. Look at verse 17. You can't look at verse 17. There is no verse 17. Why, why is there no verse 17, by the way? I don't have time to go into this. All I'll say, that, that there is no verse 17 in your Bibles should be the reason, or not the reason, should be a, a major reason why you should trust the Bible as you trust it. I didn't say that very well. That's all I'll say. That's all I'll say. Maybe I'll speak to this later. But don't be bothered by it. Be encouraged by it. That's my point. So let's look at verse 18. Then they all cried out together, take this man away, release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And so their voices won out. So what's the will of the people? Well, it's not punishment. It's death. But there's an issue. And that issue is that after both Pilate and Herod had interrogated Jesus, they find no grounds for the death penalty. In fact, one of the things that this passage does, it emphasizes over and over the innocence of Jesus. I mean, just double back. Take a look at verse 14. Pilate says there, I have found no grounds to charge this man. Verse 15, clearly he has done nothing wrong or nothing to deserve death. Verse 22, what has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. And there's actually a verse, it's a bit of a throw-in that emphasizes this as well. Take a look at verse 12, and notice what Luke writes there. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been enemies, mortal enemies, who became friends that day, why? because they agreed on one thing. Jesus wasn't guilty. He was innocent of all charges. 
And yet, anything less than the death penalty wouldn't appease the will of the people. But Midtown, just, just think about this. Pilate declares Jesus innocent in verse 14. And he says that Herod felt the same way in verse 15. He doubles down and he says, there are no grounds for death in verse 22. And then he offers, not once but twice, to punish Jesus by whipping him, even though he's innocent, and then release him. But that's not even all. Hinted at in verse 18, but shown in greater detail elsewhere, Pilate has another idea. It's kind of a Hail Mary pass. And what that was is there was a practice on Passover to release a prisoner in the spirit of Passover when sinners were were released. And in Pilate's mind, who better than Jesus? Again, read behind me. This is what Mark tells us about that event in Mark 15. At the festival, that's Passover, Pilate used to, to release for the people, a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered him, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? Like, how about Jesus? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again, they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why, what has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And it's at this point that Pilate had essentially exhausted all options. And because his will, his predominant will, was to please the people and to keep the peace, we read the following in verse 24 and 25, Pilate decided to grant their demand and release the one they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder, but he handed Jesus over to their will. Politics, on one hand. Religion, on the other. And the people with them. All working in harmony. Before moving ahead, I actually want to slow down a little bit and I want to I want to look at the exchange of Jesus for Barabbas. What do we know? Well, we know Jesus was innocent of the charges. Barabbas, however, was guilty as charged. Jesus was charged, among other things, with insurrection and rebellion. Barabbas, along with murder, was charged with insurrection and rebellion. Barabbas was guilty of the very same crime Jesus is being charged with, and yet Jesus is innocent of the charges. Meaning, Jesus the innocent was exchanged for Barabbas the guilty. 
meaning the sins of Barabbas were placed on Jesus, who took them to a cross meant for Barabbas. And the innocence of Jesus was placed on Barabbas who was set free. Jesus took his guilt, Barabbas took Jesus' innocence. Jesus the sacrifice, Barabbas the scapegoat. I I hope you see the beautiful picture that is being painted here in very vivid and living color. But to make sure that we all see the wonder and beauty of this in its fullness, let let me point something out about Jesus in this text as well. He wasn't merely innocent of the charges of insurrection and rebellion. Jesus was innocent of all charges regardless of what they were. 1 Peter 2.22, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Hebrews 4.15, we have a, a high priest who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. 1 John 3.5, he was revealed so that he might take away sins and there is no sin in him. And as we've seen already, it's not merely his friends and his followers who declare the innocence of Jesus, but his enemies and his opposition too. Jesus actually puts his innocence to the test earlier in his ministry when he says to his opposers, who among you can convict me of sin? And the response from his enemies is crickets, radio silence. One of the thieves on the cross says, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. Judas, Judas of all people, when giving back the blood money to the high priest, says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And going back to Pilate, we read this, and you can see this behind me, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, which is his worst nightmare. He took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Pilate Pilate wasn't innocent of this man's blood but this man's blood was innocent. And his blood, as the last 2,000 years have shown, would be on the people and their children. Here's a question. Why is it important that Jesus be sinless? Like, what's the big deal? Really important question that if you're a follower of Jesus, you should have some answers to. So let me give you some reasons why it's so important that Jesus be sinless. Here's the first. Number one, Jesus came to fulfill the sacrifices. And on the day of Passover, the only day of the year where the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, he would enter with blood, the blood of a lamb, spotless, 
pure and blemish free. Jesus is that lamb who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist said. Peter writes, and again behind me, for you know that you were were redeemed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. You could insert the word sinless, innocent. A second reason is because the righteous requirement of the law needed to be fulfilled meaning the Old Testament law needs to be fulfilled. But weak as we are in the flesh, couldn't fulfill it, and so what happened? Jesus did for us. This is Romans 8, 3, and 4. You can look that up on your own. In simple terms, Jesus didn't only come to die for us, but to live for us too, and he had to necessarily, and he did perfectly. In other words, to put it another way, Jesus didn't come to only exchange our sin with forgiveness, but our sin with perfect righteousness. I've given this illustration a thousand times in my life. I borrowed it uh, from hearing it somewhere else. But oftentimes, you'll hear people explain the gospel this way. It's like having a huge debt, and you go to the bank, and the banker says, we're forgiving your debt. You go, that's the gospel. That's not the gospel. Not in its entirety. What the gospel is is in its entirety is having a huge debt, getting a knock on the front door of your house, and Warren Buffett is standing there. (coughs) And he says, I'm going to take care of your big debt. But not only this, he pulls out his wallet and he hands you his gold American Express card, probably black, probably platinum. He says, here, take it. It's all yours. No limit. Have fun. That's the gospel. We have been blessed in the heavenlies. We are, we are seated with Christ now. That's the gospel. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Paul writes, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not the forgiven of God. Forgiveness is part of the gospel. But we're not the forgiven of God. We're the righteousness of God in Christ. His perfect life given to you. So when God the Father looks at you, if you are in Christ, and I know you've heard me say this before, he sees you not as merely forgiven, but perfect. Perfect. (coughs) Perfect. I like that sound, the P right there. A third reason why Jesus needed to be (coughs) sinless is because the wages of sin is death. And therefore, where there is no sin, there is no death. But where there is sin, there must be death. And yet, Jesus never sinned. So why did he die? Well, the answer is for us. If Jesus sinned, his death would only satisfy his sin. Satisfy in the idea of he would be paying his sin ransom. His death for his sins, but he didn't die for his sins. He died for ours. This, This is our precious Jesus. He took our guilt and replaced it with right, with innocence, excuse me. He took our sin and replaced it with righteousness. He took our death and he replaced it with life and he took our cross 
and he hung in our place. Midtown, we are Barabbas. We're Barabbas. Do you know what the name Barabbas means? Bar means son of. Abba. It means son of the father. One son of the father for another. The son of the father bringing many sons and daughters to glory. But we're not only Barabbas. We're Pilate too, trying to wash off what only Jesus can. And we're the religious too, enamored with our own place and position over the one standing before us. And we're the crowds as well, crying out with them, crucify him. This encounter is our encounter. As as Stuart Townend famously wrote, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all of my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. And if you don't think we're singing that song in our response time, then you don't know us very well. You can look forward to that. But here's my ask. Let's sing it in such a way that the angels take notice. Because that song encapsulates Luke 23. So the question that we began with, who killed Jesus? Well, religion did, certainly. Politics did, too. The the people did also. Jewish people and Roman people alike. And Midtown, so did we. It was our sin that held him there. And why did he die? For the sins of the world, including yours and including mine. Which leads to one final point. We've seen two wills thus far. We've seen the will of Pilate, and we've seen the will of the people. We end with the will of God. I was saying to Pat, we were kind of blown away in between two gather in the two gatherings. The song that he introduced uh, today, he wrote with his son Joel. Um, I didn't know they were introducing that song, and when they started singing it the first gathering, I thought I was blown away because in it has the verse that I want to take you to now, Isaiah 53, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah wrote this of the coming Messiah, 700 years before he arrived, Jesus. Isaiah writes, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Seven hundred years later, Jesus comes, he dies, he's buried, he rises, he ascends, he's coronated, and then the Spirit is sent. And on that day of the launch of the New Testament church, Peter says the following, men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Does the fact that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God mean that the men weren't guilty of crucifying Jesus? Well, the answer to that is no. That's why Peter calls them lawless and why he calls them later to repent. But the very thing they were guilty of is the only thing that enables them to be forgiven of what they've done. Let me say that again. The very thing they were guilty of is the only thing that enables them to be forgiven of what they've done. Lawless and guilty men crucified Jesus, but it was God's glorious plan they were carrying out. As Joseph said, Joseph and his nice jacket back in Genesis 50, as he said, and Joseph is a type of Christ. He's a foreshadowing of Jesus. As Joseph said to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. If you're blown away by this, how does this work? Then you understand why Paul, when he talks about similar things in Romans 11, says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and how untraceable his ways. I gotta wrap up. As I wrap up, I recognize fully, because I've been around the block a few times, that some question, how could the father crush his son? What kind of father does that? Again, important question. And many, many books have been written on this, on this question. For the sake of time, because my time is done, I'll just give you two br brief reasons why as we lead into a time of response. Here's the first reason, love. Reason number one is love. And reason number two is glory. No one less than Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. No more complicated than that. And because he did, we now know how deep and high and wide and far is the love of God for us. Now, I, I understand we can't imagine we can't imagine giving up a child for the sake of a friend, let alone a stranger or an enemy. But here, Midtown, listen to me. Don't allow our inability to diminish how deep the love the Father has for us, for he did. What love. He willed that he give up his one and only son and did it out of love for us. This is why Paul writes that, that his love is beyond knowledge. 
and demands power to comprehend. As Jonathan Edwards wrote, his love is like an ocean without shores and without bottom. It's a big ocean, man. And secondly, he did it for the display of his glory. This is why Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in the lead up to the cross only hours away in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. To glorify means to give a correct estimate of. And that's what the cross does. For God is never more gloriously displayed than when Jesus hung on the cross. Love never more embodied when Jesus thirsts so we could drink. Power never more displayed than when Jesus laid his power down in weakness. Holiness never more awesome than when the Father turned his face away. And grace never more sweet than when Jesus on the cross prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How deep the Father's love for us how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. If I was Pat, I would sing that, but I I can't sing. (laughs) Midtown, Jesus didn't die in spite of his greatness. His greatness was displayed in his dying. So to us, by the way. Let me close with the following uh, from the author, Ann Voskamp. She wraps things up far better than I ever could. She writes, God gave us Jesus. Jesus. God gave him up for us all. If we only have one memory, isn't this enough? Why is this the memory I most often take for granted? He cut open the flesh of the God-man and let the blood flow. He washed away our grime with bloody grace. Doesn't that memory alone suffice? Need there be anything more? The bark on the raw raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips. He has given us the incomprehensible. And that's a message good to hear at any time of the year. Would you rise as we go into a time of response. I'm going to pray for us and then Flo will lead us into this time of response. Father, there, there are times we see in, in the scriptures where the, the proper response at times is just to be quiet and stand in awe. This seems like one of those where it's, it's awesome in, in the truest sense, fullest sense of that word, what you have done for us in Jesus. Your love displayed, your glory revealed. Jesus, we confess we are Barabbas. And we thank you and praise you that you took our place our guilt, our sin on you. We walk away innocent, innocent. Oh, we thank you. We love you. We praise you. 
And I, I pray if there is someone here today as well that doesn't know you, doesn't know you, trying to wash the grime off their hands by themselves, I pray that they would come to you and have you do it for them. It's the only way they can be clean. And I pray for those of us here as well who, who have said yes to our followers. We, we would confess we're followers of Jesus, but we're not living in light of this. The deep love the Father has for us. Oh, I, I pray that today we would be refreshed, rekindled, stir our affections for you. Pour your love into us. Pour your love into us by the Spirit in us. The Spirit of, the Spirit of God is love. The fruit of the Spirit of God is love first. So pour your love out into our hearts, I pray. I pray for all of this, all of these things in the beautiful name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.